If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We've spent the last few weeks in this letter of 2 Timothy. And we've been looking at this letter because it really meets us where we are at the current time. It is a letter to a young pastor named Timothy who is pastoring the church at Ephesus. It's from the Apostle Paul and he begins here in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 14 and, and, and Paul tells Timothy to remind them of these things. So the Apostle Paul, who learned these things from Jesus, is telling this young pastor Timothy that these are the things that you need to tell the flock. This is what the church needs to know. So that is applicable to us and meets us where we are. And it's a letter from the Apostle Paul, who we have said before is in the ultimate quarantine at this time. So that makes the letter uh, one that meets us where we are. He's in the ultimate quarantine because he is in prison in Rome during the persecution of Christians under the Emperor Nero. And while we uh, will soon be coming out from under uh, our quarantine, the Apostle Paul knows at this point in time when he writes this letter that he will not be coming out of quarantine. He will not be coming out of prison. Uh, he will soon be executed. And that invests this letter with great importance. It's the last thing we have that the Apostle Paul has written. And so in the quiet of quarantine, as he faces death, the Apostle Paul has uh, great focus. He has great clarity and is able to focus on what is most important. And what Paul tells Timothy to tell his church, I want to tell you now, God has good work for us to do. Let me show you how Paul writes about that here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and then we'll uh, unpack it together after I pray for us. So hear now God's word, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore... If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Let's pray as we come to the scripture together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter that although it is 2,000 years old, is so applicable to the situation in which we find ourselves. Thank you for preserving it. Surely one of the reasons you preserved it low these many years is so that you could guide us and give us direction as your church so that we would be prepared and ready to do the good work you have for us to do. I pray that through your word you would be willing to show us how to be ready for that good work, how we can prepare ourselves. And we ask that you would show us that through your word and even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God has good work for us to do. Now, even as I say that, I want to be very clear that we are not saved by this good work. So we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. 
Paul has said that to this church very clearly earlier. There's a letter he wrote to the church at Ephesus earlier that we call Ephesians. And in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul makes this point very clear, where he says, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So Paul has clearly said that we're not saved by the good things that we do. We're not saved by cleansing ourselves. He says specifically we're saved by God because of his grace and his mercy towards us. And so he says explicitly we're not saved by our good works. But he does say that we're saved for good works. Because the very next verse, Ephesians 2 and verse 10 tells us, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good work which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So we see that Paul has stated very clearly we're not, stated, we're not saved by good works, we're not saved by the good things that we do, but we are saved to do good works. After we're adopted by God, after we've been born again, after our lives have been changed, we've been adopted by his family, God has good work for us to do. And Paul illustrates that here in this letter in 2 Timothy chapter 2, these verses we just read, Paul uses an illustration that also meets us just where we are at the current time. He uses the illustration of cleaning a house. Now, I don't know what quarantine has looked like at your house, but we've cleaned up a lot of areas that we had not gotten to, those out-of-the-way places that we've kind of just let go. We have cleaned those things, and many folks have done a lot of work on their homes. Home Depot and Lowe's have been very busy. And so Paul writes in verse 20 about this great house. And he tells us that we have to do some cleansing of our house to be useful for God in order to be used of him to do good work. Look at it there in verse 21. Paul specifically says, Therefore, if anyone... So this just isn't for pastors or for teachers or for leaders. He says, If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel. For honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So Paul is saying we need to do some cleansing inside of us, not just in our homes, in order to be ready to do the good work that God has for us to do. And he says if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, then he will be ready. Well, that begs the question. What is dishonorable that we need to cleanse ourselves from? Well, this illustration that we've looked at in verses 20 and 21 is sort of a hinge passage. There are some verses that go before this and some verses that come after this where Paul tells explicitly what it is that we need to cleanse ourselves from in order to be ready for any good work. And that's what I want to look at with you today. I have put them under two headings, uh, and I think you'll see that they fall. Most everything falls under these two headings. That we're to cleanse ourselves first from anything untruthful, and second, we cleanse ourselves from anything unloving. So let's look at those two things together. Anything untruthful we want to cleanse ourselves from, and anything that is unloving. First, anything untruthful. Paul is very concerned about the truth in this text. You see it there in verse 15. 
He tells Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And then he contrasts some other men who are turning away from the faith. There in verse 18, he describes them as those who have swerved from the truth or wandered away from the truth. So Paul is concerned about the truth before this illustration in verses 20 and 21. And then afterward, he comes back to this idea about the truth. He says that in uh, verse 24, that the Lord's servant should be able to teach the truth, that we would teach what is true. And in verse 25, he says that the Lord's servant, that we are to correct our opponents and that they would be led to a knowledge of the truth. So Paul is very interested in this passage with what is true and with truth and with our cleansing ourselves of anything that is untruthful. Well, that begs the question, what determines truth? What is the truth that we are to teach? If we are to correct other folks with the truth, what is the truth that we correct them with? And, of course, Paul has identified that in verse 15 where he tells Timothy not to be ashamed that he's a worker who rightly handles the word of truth. He says truth is found in God's word. Paul will talk about that more and we'll see in the coming weeks in chapter 3 that God's word is what the truth is. And that's what gives us direction for our lives and helps us to know what is true and what is not true. It's the same thing Jesus said when he was praying for his disciples in that high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 and verse 17. Paul, um, Jesus prays to the heavenly Father that the Father would separate his disciples out by the truth. John 17 and verse 17 says, sanctify them by the truth. And then Jesus clarifies, thy word is truth. So it's the word of God that helps us to know what is true and what is untrue. And it's so interesting, as Paul talks about, we want to be people who rightly or correctly handle the word of truth in verse 15, as opposed to those who swerve from or wander away from the truth there in verse 18. Uh, These verbs are very interesting. They're sort of rarely used in the scripture. The one in verse 15 that we rightly handle or we correctly handle the word of truth. You may remember the old King James that the man of God, uh, that he correctly divides the word of truth because the verb there actually means to cut straight. It's only used one other time in all of the scripture, and that is in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, where we're told, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths, or He will make your paths straight. Literally, that God cuts a straight path for us. And that's the verb that is used here. It's the idea that you cut a road straight to where you're going, straight to your destination, so it's easier to get there, as opposed to swerving off the path and having a road that meanders and that is not straight. The word used there in verse 18 for swerve from or wander away from the truth is actually a term from archery. It's a term that means to miss the mark. 
that the word of God shows us what the target is, and we're either on target or we're off the target. So if the word of God is a target, we're either on target or we're missing the mark. If the word of God is a road, then either our road is straight or it swerves away from the truth. That's how we know what to teach. That's how we know what to oppose and how to correct people is the word which is true. Of course, that leads me to ask you the question, are you in the word? Are you using this time that we have to be in the word every day? Do you read it every day? Are you in a study that helps you learn to study the word and to give you greater understanding of the word? For us to be prepared for the good work that God has for us, for us to be ready for that good work, we must know the word so that we can correct what is not true, so that we can move toward what is true, so that we can be on target for what God has for us to do. Now the text tells what happens when we're not on target, when we swerve from the truth. Uh, You see it there quickly, verse 14, it says it ruins the hearers. Verse 16 says it leads, people are led more and more into ungodliness. Verse 18 says, Uh, that they are upsetting the faith of some, that our faith is destroyed. And then it says in verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands. That that's where we have hope, that that's where we have surety is in that firm foundation that verse 19 refers to that we sang about just a few moments ago. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Are you spending time in the word? Do you have that as your strong foundation? I must warn you, that this applying the truth of the word is not always as easy as it sounds. We're told to, to teach and to correct and to lead to the truth. But then in verse 14, Paul says not to quarrel about words. Or in verse 23, he says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels, he says to Timothy. That's tough. Do you feel the tension there? We teach, we correct, we lead to the truth, but we avoid quarrels about words. We avoid foolish, ignorant controversies. That's tough to know when we're standing for truth and how we correct people and teach and lead to the truth without quarreling about words or getting caught up in foolish controversies. That can be difficult to do. How do we know? Are we standing on the word or are we involved in a foolish, ignorant controversy? Well, typically, what we do where we get into trouble is when we begin to equate our preferences or our opinion or our tradition and we equate those things with God's word. That tends to be when we get into trouble. Let me give you an example. Imagine with me, if you will, that the deacons are working on a plan for the use of the facility. We have new deacons, and they're working on that right now. But imagine these hypothetical deacons that I speak of are trying to decide where the pastor will park. Now, I don't know that our deacons are working on that, but just imagine in this hypothetical that the deacons are deciding where the pastor will park. And imagine one group of elders or one group of deacons says, We want to honor our pastor. 
The letter to 1 Timothy says that those who teach and govern the affairs of the church are worthy of double honor. So we want to honor our pastor. And so this group says, biblically, we should give the pastor a parking place close to the church, maybe with a little sign honoring him because we want to honor our pastor. But then another group of deacons says, well, yes, but... Our pastor is supposed to be the example of service for us. He is a servant. He's supposed to be a good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, that he came not to be served but to serve, and he can exemplify that if we have him park the farthest away, maybe all the way up there at the Arby's drive through and let him walk the farthest of all of us. And so biblically, the pastor's parking place should be all the way up at Arby's. And you've seen this happen before in churches, sides divide, each side believes they are upholding biblical truth in their generation, friends divide, people leave the church. It may sound laughable to you, but I'll tell you, I've seen people leave the church over less than that. And sometimes we do have to laugh to keep from crying, but the truth is the Bible actually says nothing about where a pastor is to park. I know it's hard to believe, but that's what the scripture says. You see, there are equally godly people who are trying to figure out the right thing to do, and it's not always easy because of these foolish, ignorant controversies that Paul writes about in verse 23. You see, it's the, the foolishness is fighting about a parking space. And the ignorance is thinking that our opinion about a parking space is equal to biblical truth. And the controversy is the division that results from it. It's not always easy to do the right thing. It's not always easy to stand for biblical truth because we get confused with our opinions and our preferences that we equate with the truth. Let's bring it a little closer to home instead of our church. What about your home? Suppose you have a toddler who spills milk. Do you discipline the toddler? Is it a sin to spill milk? Well, I suppose it depends. If the toddler's just reaching for milk and they haven't gotten their coordination good and they spilled the milk, that's not a sin that needs to be disciplined. We're not standing for biblical truth by, uh, by disciplining a toddler in that situation. But maybe you have been in the situation. If the toddler looks at you and holds the milk out to the side and you say, no, don't do it, and the toddler looks at you and then turns and pours the milk out on the floor after you just said to, now maybe we're dealing with a sin issue, not with spilling milk, but with being disobedient to parents, which is standing on the word of God. It's not always easy to see when we're standing for truth and when we're just enforcing our convenience or opinions or preferences from God's word. Think about that as you confront people. Is what your friend doing a sin? Is what your spouse doing a sin that you have chapter and verse and that's exactly what they're doing is what the Bible says not to do? Or are they just doing something different than the way you would do it? And you're all riled up about it. 
and you know a verse that, that you can try to apply to that situation. Friends, I must tell you, we need one another's help. I need your help. You need my help for us to stand on the word and not equate our opinions or our preferences with it. It's not always easy, but we must avoid anything untruthful, yet not get caught up in foolish controversies. Let's help each other with that because we want to be prepared for the good work God has for us to do. But there's a second thing Paul talks about in the text. Not only do we want to cleanse ourselves from anything that's untruthful, we want to cleanse ourselves from anything that is unloving. Anything unloving. Think about that. You can be right. You can be standing for truth based on God's word. You can be on target. You can be on the right path and be a jerk, right? And Paul seems to be saying here, the Lord's servant is not a jerk, Look at it with me. He says it in many ways. Look at it beginning in verse 42. He's just said that we want to cleanse ourselves from things that are dishonorable. Verse 22, so flee youthful passions. Now when we see that flee youthful passions, we tend to think of lust or sexual immorality. And these words certainly include those things. But the words are actually broader. When we talk about Fleeing youthful passions, we're talking about fleeing self-centeredness, self-indulgence, self-seeking. A lot of the things that come with immaturity, which is why it's youthful passion. That we, it's the kind of thing that 1 Corinthians 13 talks about. It says where it says love is patient, which we'll talk about in a minute. Love is kind, which is mentioned in the text. That it's not arrogant, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, which is why I put all these things under this category of anything unloving. That we're not supposed to, in a childish way, in a youthful passion, be focused on ourselves, our own self-centeredness, our own self-indulgence, our own self-seeking. We're to flee those things and then pursue, and before we look at what we pursue, notice those verbs. We flee one thing and we pursue another. We run away from something and run towards something else. That's a picture of repentance, right? What a beautiful picture. We run away from youthful passion, and we run to what? What do we run toward? It tells us there, the rest of verse 22, that we pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Do you hear that? This running from and running toward is not something we do alone. We do it along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So i got to ask you, who are you doing this with? Who are you recognizing what you need to run from, flee from, and what you need to pursue, what you need to run to? This is the third time in three weeks that I've asked you this question. And I ask it because the text keeps asking the question. Who is it that's further down the road that we are learning from, that we're learning from them what we need to flee and what we need to pursue? And who is it that maybe is not as far along in the Christian life as you that you can help learn what to flee from and what to pursue, of what that looks like in our lives today? Who are those folks for you? 
The scripture keeps coming back and keeps showing us that this is not something that we do alone. So I want to challenge you again to be thinking about who those folks are. Call them, talk to them, pray, ask the Lord to show you who those things would be, who those people would be for you, because this is not something that we do alone, that we do this fleeing and pursuing along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. The Apostle Paul goes on when he's telling us to avoid anything unloving. We looked at verse 23 about foolish and ignorant controversies that breed quarrels. And then in verse 24 he says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Let's pick up there in verse 24 where it says, he says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Now let's be clear. This does not mean that you don't ever confront anyone. It doesn't mean that you never agree on anyone because this word is not because we're supposed to correct our opponents with gentleness, right? But this word quarrelsome is not just an act of disagreeing, but it's an attitude. Maybe you've seen it before. Some people are just ready for a fight. We're just looking for one. Maybe you've seen them online or on Facebook before. They're just waiting on the next thing to pounce on. That's a a quarrelsome spirit. It makes me sad to think that some of us, when we think of truth, we think of fighting. And certainly we stand for what is true. But we are kind to everyone. We correct our opponents with gentleness patiently enduring what is evil. Oh my, we correct our opponents with gentleness. You know, it makes me sad because we sometimes use the truth to justify lovelessness. Because we're right, we think that we can be ugly to each other. And it's easy to rationalize because we're in the right. And we use the fact that we are right to run over people. And Paul says, look at what he says about the Lord's servant, that he's not to be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Is that humbling to you? That humbles me. You know, Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 5, where he says that we're that you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus says, love your neighbor and love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus says, what good is it if you just love people who love you? Most folks do that. That's not evidence of anything special. But the Lord's servant, we correct our opponents with gentleness. We are kind to everyone. Not that we compromise on the truth, but the way we present the truth makes a difference. Surely you've been in a situation with your kids or your friends or your spouse where you have to apologize. And it's not because you were wrong. You were right. What you said was right. It wasn't what you said. It was how you said it. And that's what Paul is speaking about here, that we can be right and be a jerk, or we can be right and correct with gentleness, kind to everyone, patiently enduring evil. Do you see that in verse 24? 
that we're able to teach patiently enduring evil. When I first looked at that, I was like, can that be right? Is that what that says? Patiently enduring what? What? Endure evil? Shouldn't it be that the Lord's servant is supposed to, to conquer evil? We're supposed to overcome evil. We're supposed to do away with evil. Isn't that what your heart wants it to say? It says patiently enduring evil. It means that we live alongside of evil. It means that we have to put up with or tolerate evil. The idea is that we're going to outlive it and praise God we will. That we will outlive it. That we will keep on going in the presence of evil without stopping. That we will persevere in doing good and correcting what's wrong with gentleness. And repenting when we don't. That we're going to keep on going in the face of evil kind to everyone. Not in a quarrelsome way even though we live in the presence of evil itself. Now you may be thinking to yourself, whoa... Patience means I'm supposed to put up with evil. I have no patience with evil because I'm righteous. And I understand there's a place for righteous indignation. We are supposed to confront things that are wrong. It says that we, that we do confront our opponents, that we correct them with gentleness. I get it. But let me just ask you to consider this. How many things are wrong in your life right now as we sit here today? And which of those things are you going to choose to, to work on? And which ones are you going to kind of let go for a while until you have a chance to get to them? Now, I ask those questions to make this point. God is patiently enduring your evil and mine. Oh, he's been so patient with us. Our whole doctrine of sanctification would have to prove this is true, right? We believe that day by day we die more and more to sin and we live more and more into righteousness, that that is a work that God is doing in us, that we gradually every day look more like Jesus. But think about what that means. It means that we are day by day still tainted with unholiness. We're still day by day wrestling with the own evil that is in our own hearts. Maybe you've had this experience before. You get convicted of a sin. And those people who have known you for a while know you've struggled with this sin for years. But God's just now showing it to you. You're like, oh my gosh, I've been like this as long as I can remember. Why has God let it go on so long? Why hasn't he confronted me about this and convicted me of this sooner? It's because he's been patiently enduring your evil and mine. It's because if he showed us all of our sin at once, we'd be overwhelmed, we'd be undone. But in his patience and his kindness, he gives us a little bit at a time to work on. That's how God has worked towards us. We don't expect a second grader to master calculus. And that's how God has worked with us. So the question is, are we going to extend that same grace and patience to others? I was so convicted getting ready for this sermon. I had to apologize. I feel like with my children, I've been angry and exasperated with them because they haven't seemed to catch on to something that it took me 25 years to learn. 
something that took me 35 years to learn, something that took me 45 years to learn, and I'm mad with them that they haven't gotten it yet. The question for us is this, as we think about patiently enduring evil, will we be patient with other people and give them time for God to lead them to repentance? I'm not saying back down. Yes, we kindly correct. We correct with gentleness. But are we going to be patient with them, giving God time to lead them to repentance? Or will we demand that they are right right now? Some of us need to repent. We need to confess. I have been impatient. In the name of God, I have been impatient with people, and it's wrong. Some of us need to confess. In the name of truth, I have been unkind. Throwing around verses from this book that tell me to be kind to everyone, to correct with gentleness, I've been unkind and ungentle while I profess the very truth that this book, that this book teaches me. And for some of us, we've done just the opposite. In an effort to be loving, in an effort, an effort to be gracious, we haven't brought the truth to bear, which is really unloving and ungracious in itself. It's Gracious to tell people the right thing to do. Some of us need to say, God, forgive me for the way that I have not cleansed myself of this untruthfulness and this being unloving. I must tell you, God already knows. He has been patiently enduring your evil and mine. And he is calling us to do this house cleaning now. Because God has good work for us to do. Will we get ready to do it? Will we cleanse ourselves of these things? Oh, beloved, what an opportunity we have at this point in time. Our good work as the church, as the people of God, is to uphold the truth while being kind to everyone. Our job is to correct our opponents with gentleness, to, in love, tell them the right path to be on so that they are not harmed by getting on the wrong path. We get to speak the truth in love. We stand for grace and truth. Think about it with me. Truthfulness without graciousness is just meanness, plain and simple. And then graciousness without truthfulness is just meaninglessness, just meaningless sentimentality. But what would happen in our homes? What would happen in our church? What would happen in our community if we begin to stand for grace and truth? If we begin to speak the truth in love? What if our patience and our gentleness was just as powerful as the truth of our doctrine? I believe those around us would say, wow, what is this? Where is this coming from? I've never seen anything before like it anywhere else. And we have the opportunity to say, can I tell you about Jesus? I learned it from him.
Oh, may God do that in this place and in our hearts. Let's pray and ask him to do it. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have good work for us to do. Thank you that you use even broken and messed up people like us. I pray that you would help us to to confess where we fall short and that you would help us to cleanse ourselves so that we might be useful to you and ready for the good work you have for us to do. Please do that in us this day. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.